Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. This talk comes from National Security College. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. For those of you I, I don't know, I haven't met, my name's Michael Lestrange and I'm the uh, head of the National Security College and I'd just like to welcome all of you very warmly to another in our public seminar series. And let me begin by saying that uh, we acknowledge and celebrate uh, the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're meeting uh, and we pay our respects to the Ngunnawal people past and present. Um, in welcoming you this evening, can I say that uh, this event is um, both timely and important for the uh, National Security College and for the wider um, Australian community. The issue that we're focusing on this evening, um, the rise of Indonesia, its future prospects, its relationship with Australia, uh, is always timely. It's even more timely um, in the period in which we're addressing it. Uh, it's also important for the National Security College because we're um, releasing this evening uh, some occasional papers which have been formed from uh, a collaborative exercise with scholars uh, at the college, um, throughout Australia and in the region. And it's brought together this group physically and virtually on a number of occasions uh, and uh, the papers that are being released this evening is a product of that and will form the basis of a, uh, a publication uh, later in the year. So. Um, it's a significant occasion for us, and I'd like to very warmly welcome um, two guests and one resident, um, Dr Chris Roberts, who is uh, on the academic staff of the National Security College and has overseen uh, this project from the start, um, which has been a complex one and I think a very fruitful and productive one for the college and hopefully for the wider community. Um, I'd also like to welcome uh, Dr Derry Habir from the uh, School of Government and Public Policy in Jakarta, uh, and Associate Professor Leonard Sebastian from the Rajaratnam School uh, in Singapore. They have both been key collaborators um, on this project with Chris. Um, they're very welcome visitors here. We've actually been delighted to have them here in the college this week. Uh, worked them pretty hard with um, uh, involvement in some of the, co the courses we're running at the moment for, uh, for government officials, um, roundtables with academics uh, this evening, uh, but most importantly, uh, we're appreciative not just for that involvement, but for their work underpinning uh, this uh, set of papers that we're issuing today. So um, it's a very great honour to welcome them, and uh, these are established scholars on Southeast Asia uh, with a strong record of achievement and publication. Uh, both uh, achieved their uh, PhDs here at the ANU, in fact, both graduated on exactly the same day. So um, we've brought them back to the place where it all began. Um, so it's very good to have you both, Derry and, and Leonard. Thank you very much for your involvement. We look forward to an ongoing uh, relationship with you. And thank you, Chris, for uh, coordinating this project. I'd now like to introduce Chris to um, explain 
uh, in further detail some of the origins of this and the purposes of this project, um, why we did it, how it's come together, and what we hope it achieves. Chris. Yes, this uh, 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 project is, is important, as Michael pointed out, for a, a couple of reasons. First, it is the inaugural uh, sort of uh, suite of uh, issue briefs uh, for the National Security College. Uh, why uh, issue briefs? These are uh, ideally around 2,500, 3,000 word succinct uh, uh, papers that are fully referenced, um, have gone through a review uh, uh, process, but address and are open to people to submit uh, who want to address uh, contemporary uh, issues uh, relevant to national uh, security in the broader uh, region. Um, as far as the project itself is, is concerned, the origins uh, actually go back uh, to my participation in Indonesia's Presidential Friends of Indonesia program in 2011. And the stars thereafter seem to align, uh, bringing uh, Derry and Leonard uh, together for the first time in, I believe, quite uh, quite some uh, some years. And uh, and so I've been very fortunate to have such a a, a good team uh, to work with uh, since the end of uh, 2012 through uh, to today with the, uh, the the different stages of this project. The issue briefs bring together 19 authors uh, from across. Uh, the region, but are very balanced, I think, in terms of probably almost close to 50% of the authors are from Indonesia. And we have a good mix of, of long-established experts in the field, as well as some up-and-coming uh, scholars who have recently graduated, and, and I feel, uh, you know, very pleased that we've given that opportunity and some fresh uh, ideas have come uh, about as a consequence uh, of, of uh, that. The process, is, as Michael hinted, has been quite extensive. It's involved multiple trips for the purpose of field work by uh, the lead uh, investigators, not just in Jakarta, but also in the region, such as in Singapore. Uh, we've had a conference here early last year in, uh, uh, hosted by the National Security College. Uh, and we also had a conference in Jakarta. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, we've also brought in other people, such as commentators, etc., to review the papers along uh, the uh, process. Indeed, uh, with 19 authors, uh, this has actually uh, grown to cover a very uh, a, a broader range of issues than we initially uh, anticipated. In terms of history, our very own uh, Sue Thompson uh, gives uh, you know a very articulate and uh, succinct. Uh, analysis of, of the historical foundations to where Indonesia is and is moving in the, uh, in the future. We have uh, several articles looking at the domestic foundations of, of Indonesia's rise, uh, both in terms of the opportunities and the constraints to its future rise as well, such as uh, economic considerations, the political uh, environment, such as Dr. Stephen Sherlock, uh, somewhere here in the, uh, in the audience, um, the nexus between politics, security and defence, an analysis of security fault lines uh, or unresolved issues, as by Robert uh, Lowry, also here in the uh, audience. At the regional and international uh, levels, uh, we have an article looking at the nexus between democratic values and foreign policy, how that has informed foreign policy. Also, uh, the Indonesia's uh, normative priorities, uh, including, as one of the authors, Derry uh, Habir, uh, over 
uh, there, and uh, uh, also Indonesia's role in international institutions such as the United Nations, the Non-Aligned Movement, and the uh, G20. Uh, Leonard has also contributed to a, a paper and a later chapter on Indonesia's maritime uh, interests. There's also uh, an analysis of possible collaboration uh, by Indonesia with other democratic middle powers. Uh, we have another article on Australia's relations with uh, Indonesia by myself and uh, Derry Habir. Uh, we also have a, a paper on Indonesia's key bilateral relationships in the, the region by the ANU's uh, Yongwuk Ru, uh, as well as another paper on Indonesia's leadership in ASEAN uh, by uh, Alina and uh, myself. Uh, finally, we have a paper by uh, Associate Professor uh, Siseng Tan, uh, from Singapore on Indonesia's current and future relations and influence with the great uh, powers. As Michael uh, mentioned, this will lead, a larger version of the papers you have uh, before you, will lead to a 17-chapter uh, uh, edited volume with Palgrave uh, Macmillan uh, to be published at the beginning of uh, next year, uh, submitted uh, to them by uh, June uh, uh, this year. Um, before moving on to the uh, presentations, uh, with uh, Derry providing the, uh, the, the first, uh, uh, last and by no means least, I'd just like to thank Martin and George for all their work and leadership in managing uh, the activities for this week, and especially importantly, Michael Lestrange and the National Security College for providing us with the opportunity and the funds uh, to conduct uh, this research project. Uh, and on that note, I'll pass over to uh, Derry Habir. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's always uh, good to be here back in uh, uh, where I struggled for a long time. Um, uh, initially, Chris asked me to write about the economic side of, of, uh, of our project, uh, which was actually written by Satish uh, Mishra. Um, and since I'm not uh, an economist, I gracefully slided into uh, uh, or nimbly slided into a topic uh, of recent concern in Indonesia, which is uh, economic uh, nationalism. It was very much in the news because of the mineral, uh, the, the ban on mineral <laughs> exports. Um, I, the, the nimble side of it can be uh, changed to smart nation, uh, economic nationalism or uh, strategic economic nationalism. Uh, uh, in essence, though, Indonesia has been lacking in those attributes in terms of its economic nationalism. But I, th I, I hope to give um, some context in which why, why there is that uh, economic, uh, economic nationalism. I start out with, uh, this is taken from uh, Thomas Lindblad's uh, article on uh, paper on uh, uh, bird's eye view of decolonization in um, in Indonesia, and it quotes uh, 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 Haji Agus Salim, who was a foreign minister when that was uh, when that was uh, made. I think uh, around, if I'm not mistaken, around 48 or 49. If it was 48, it was my birth uh, year. But uh, uh, it, that was the, the, the after the independence, but uh, political independence. But of course, what he's saying is that. Uh, the economic independence has not been attained. And I think that underlies much of the motivation, much of the, the urge for um, economic uh, nationalism. Um, now, 
nationalism in general has always had uh, a bad name to it, um, a, a negative connotation. Um, and uh, uh, almost automatically, when, when people uh, talk about nationalism, unless they are very uh, pro, obviously, um, it, it, it connotes something that is not, uh, not positive. Um, and in terms of economic nationalism, there, it, it connotes a self-destruction of, uh, of uh, economy, uh, economies uh, all, over the, all over the world. Um, however, when you think about countries like Japan, uh, Korea, um, even the United States, uh, th there could be an argument that uh, uh, economic nationalism in the beginning would have been something that would have contributed to their development up to a stage where eventually free trade would have been considered. Free trade itself could be considered in the national economic interest of a particular country. And countries, those types of con those countries have been uh, probably more consciously, certainly more consciously than uh, I think, than I believe in Indonesia, have, uh, uh, have actively done um, acts of economic nationalism. Here is one from a close neighbor of yours um, that uh, apparently have, uh, have not allowed uh, uh, China to, 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 um, to buy up uh, land. This one is from Denmark, uh, selling its green, green competency, um, a more attractive uh, design than the previous one. Uh, and of course, I've always been impressed by Australia's patriot patriotism uh, in, in its uh, uh, products and, uh, and, and, and businesses. When it comes to Indonesia, however, you have, of course, a rather negative uh, uh, look at, uh, at economic uh, uh, nationalism. If you, um, if you look back at uh, the, the, um, one of the first people who thought about economic nationalism, Friedrich Liszt, he actually focused, even though he did advocate protectionism, infant industry, um, he focused on the nationalist, nationalism part of that two-word uh, uh, phrase. Um, so that he argued that uh, it was important at that time uh, to, to put this, the, 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 the nation in questions of economics and not just focus on the individual or on the broad uh, humankind. He, uh, uh, in, in some of those early economists considered free trade, for example, as being the, 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 the bringer of worldwide peace, for example. Um, and uh, so if we look at it in that context, we can think that um, there may be a flexible use of economic policies as long as it contributes to uh, the national um, interest and uh, well-being. Well um, now, Indonesia is may well pay the price for its economic nationalism, but at the moment, we are talking in the context of what we hope, at least, will be Indonesia's ascent. And 
these, these, uh, the first uh, few, the first sentence is almost uh, a mantra uh, spoken by many uh, Indonesian officials, including uh, SPY. And this was, of course, spoken by SPY, President SPY, in the Australian uh, Parliament. Um, he was actually uh, in, in the in relation to um, Indonesian Australian relations. He was quite uh, vocal about the need to change things with regard to relationship, uh, the relationships. Um, but in and but he was trying to give the context of why that change would be would be needed. And part of the reason of the recent economic nationalism. They, uh, many people attribute to the fact that uh, during the time that we needed a lot of assistance from, uh, uh, from, from the IMF and the World Bank and other agencies at the time of the Asian crisis, uh, this particular picture did not uh, uh, play well in, uh, in Indonesia. Um, and there are still, still some people um, thinking that uh, um, we should in, again, going back to uh, Haji Agus Salim's uh, quotation, uh, trying to get away from that uh, uh, dependence. And pr probably today, for the first time, at least in my lifetime, um, Indonesia has not been a, a basket case, like uh, in the days with Gunnar Myrdal, uh, Benjamin Higgins, uh, um, and uh, there, there are a set of um, uh, circumstances in, uh, in Indonesia, uh, granted, and we will talk about them, uh, that these are in the context of many um, things that are um, not uh, favorable to, to uh, Indonesia, like such as corruption, uh, social uh, unrest, uh, etc. Uh, but by and large, this has given uh, a confidence that has not been, um, I feel, not been um, felt in a long time. I've never seen this before. In fact, I've never seen this until I find, tried to find something that uh, would show uh, that uh, uh, of this confidence. So um, this is the context of what we are facing uh, going into um, the future. And of course, the future includes, we just had the legislative uh, uh, elections, and the future includes these two people. Um, now, um, the, in terms of the decolonization of uh, the Indonesian economy, uh, when you look back, uh, Prabowo Subianto's father was uh, trade minister back in 19, early 1950s, um, and a trade and industry minister in the early uh, 50s. And he was the architect of, uh, among others, the Benteng program, which was uh, um, meant to, to uh, favor the indigenous or pre-Bumi uh, entrepreneurs, uh, which was a spectacular failure. Um, but uh, in the 1980s, when he was, I think at that time, was a senior advisor to uh, President Suharto. Um, he proposed that he was one of those who strongly proposed the deregulation of the Indonesian economy. In, uh, in my institute, when we had the first commencement 
of, um, of the school, he addressed uh, us, and that was the, the second speech after he gave another first speech in, in the University of Indonesia of the need for deregulation at a time when there was a lot of political opposition uh, to it. So I think that is a, 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 an expression or a, a, an act of the flexibility that one is needed in term, even if you're talking about economic nationalism. Um, now you have uh, Jokowi, who is the, uh, the, he has to keep the, the, the legacy, or he doesn't have to keep, I hope he doesn't keep, the, the legacy of Sukarno in terms of uh, the, the economic policies uh, at Sabah, the economic nationalist policies, where that was approaching autarkic uh, policies such as the, the slogan Berdikari, uh, so, so, uh, that was, you know, independence or, or so, uh, sustainability by, um, by the country. Um, and that actually, all those, uh, the, the policies by, uh, the policies by the Sukarno regime um, were not, uh, were not productive to say, to say the least. However, I should mention that of I, I, this next this next quote. Please don't take it as an, a, my personal endorsement for Prabowo Subianto. Um, this is this is a quote, a recent quote from um, from an interview. I'm considered a strong economic nationalist, but I'm also I'm also a realist. It should not be done in a way that backfires at you. The goal is improved prosperity. He was talking in response to question related to the, the ban, the mineral ban. Um, and this, in, in a way, reflects um, his, his, his father, even though I don't know whether he, in fact, looks at his father in, in, in that way. Um, so let me go back to, to the, the quote of Haji Agusalim. If we consider um, economic nationalism, uh, Robert Reich, in his uh, in his book, um, the state I think it was the State of Nations, um, said that economic nationalists should move away from protectionism, but that they should act uh, play an, uh, the government should play an active role in um, the investment of uh, education um, and. Uh, uh, infrastructure. You can add to that health, um, you can add to that technology. And I think that is uh, uh, what is needed in the future from, uh, from uh, in Indonesia. I think we need to reconcile the, the democratization of uh, Indonesia with, uh, and it's not necessarily, but sometimes it is difficult, uh, with the need for long-term uh, strategic uh, planning. Now, I seem to have run out of slides, so I will end my production. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's very nice to see all of you here today. Uh, I know that uh, you must be suffering from Indonesia fatigue by now, uh, considering the number of events that the ANU has hosted on various aspects of Indonesia, uh, either leading up to the elections or as we lead up to the presidential elections. So full marks to all of you for 
turning up for yet another seminar on Indonesia. I've, uh, it's such a pleasure to be here uh, at the ANU. I was here from 1992 to 1994. Uh, I remember my experiences vividly, but uh, you know, one of the nicest things about being here in Canberra is that you, you have such a wonderful collection of uh, scholars who work on Indonesia. The range of scholarship here is quite astonishing. Uh, when I first stepped into the research school uh, of Asia-Pacific Studies, uh, I think as it was then called, um, I was amazed at just the number of people uh, working on Indonesia in the various departments, centres, programmes, study groups. So it was a real education for me, but more importantly, it laid a, 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 real, a real solid grounding for me to study Indonesia. Um, of course, you know, I had to return back to, to Singapore to, to continue work, but I made sure I at least managed to see my beloved Canberra Raiders uh, lift the, the Winfield Cup, um, you know, watched uh, the match on television and uh, uh, followed the victory parade and even had the opportunity to shake hands and have a chat with Mel Meninga. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Uh, but unfortunately, it looks like they've gone downhill since I've left. So maybe I should stay here longer, you know. Um, yeah, it's a pity. But uh, then again, uh, there's always the Brumbies, right? You know, they seem to be doing, doing much better. Um, the ANU has produced outstanding research on all facets of development relating uh, to Indonesia. Uh, from year to year, you know, we in Singapore astonished and struck by the range and quality of research produced here. Uh, for my colleagues at RSIS, the, the Rajaratnam School of International Studies, and of course myself uh, as the coordinator of the Indonesia program, uh, the ANU is really the benchmark for measuring excellence, uh, particularly for our work on Indonesia. Uh, hence, it's a real pleasure to participate in a project on Indonesia hosted by an outstanding institution, the, the National uh, Security College uh, uh, here at the university. So I want to thank uh, Professor Michael uh, Lestrange for supporting this project, uh, and my co-editors, uh, Chris and Derry, uh, for working with me. Um, it's, it's especially nice to work with friends. Um, this is an important project. And let me tell you why it is, it is a critical project uh, for us to take note of. Uh, the issue briefs and the edited volume that will follow will plug a gap in the research on Indonesia conducted uh, here at the ANU. In fact, what it will do is it will position the National uh, Security College uh, and the ANU by that extension uh, as a, a significant uh, research centre for this particular research uh, uh, sorry, a significant research uh, uh, body for work on, on Indonesian foreign policy. Uh, over the years, I believe the ANU has fallen behind a little, particularly with respect to research on defence, security and foreign policy as it pertains to Indonesia. There is uh, considerable expertise uh, within various government institutions here uh, in Australia on Indonesian foreign policy. However, the think tanks and universities in Australia have fallen behind in this particular aspect of research. So what I hope this, this volume will do is that uh, it will produce uh, research that uh, will not only be uh, 
useful for academics, but will have solid policy relevance. The, the series of issue briefs come at an important time. Indonesia no longer exists in a benign security environment. Foreign Minister Martin Natale Gawa's use of the term dynamic equi equilibrium, while vague, does to some extent describe the existent strategic dilemma faced by Indonesia as it strives for strategic autonomy in a region placed, sorry, in a region plagued by trust deficits, territorial disputes, and strategic change. As an increasingly disjointed ASEAN, spluttered with its member states being tugged in several directions by politicking from within and external power plays from without, ASEAN centrality has been called into question following changes in the new security environment. The first is the rise of China. Its growing investments and the, the climate of interdependence it has created in Southeast Asia produces or <coughs> creates a challenge uh, for member states. The other aspect is the build-up of its naval capabilities. The, the second is the countervailing pivot or the rebalancing efforts of the United States in, the, in its Asia-Pacific engagement. The third are territorial disputes in Southeast Asia. None of Indonesia's neighbours can assume that its foreign policy will remain unchanged over the coming years. Jakarta will redefine its regional role as its relative wealth and power grows. More importantly, it will redefine its role as the region itself changes under the influence of the rise of China, the emergence of India, and of course, its, in, uh, its attendant implications for the role of the US and Japan. We will undoubtedly see over the coming years a changed Indonesia. The last five years of the Yudhoyono presidency had revealed an Indonesia more confident and more assertive. Strategically, they have become more active on the regional stage, but increasingly operating very much as an independent power in its own right. Questions still abound over its trajectory. Will a more confident Indonesia be more inclined to assert its interests? Would Indonesia be harder to deal with and more inclined to assert what Indonesia believes are its interests? It is our hope, then, that these issue briefs will begin the debate and prompt further research by scholars. What is evident in this collection of issue briefs is essentially a wide range of topics uh, that we hope uh, scholars and students will follow up on, specifically in the areas of the influence of domestic factors on foreign policy, the nature of norms and values that shape Indonesia's foreign policy outlook and how they impact on, on foreign policy as a whole, the ideational tools that will shape Indonesia's foreign policy, um, particularly its engagement with institutions like the United Nations, the G20 and the Non-Aligned Movement, issues relating to the law of the sea and maritime sovereignty as Indonesia uh, looks to 
defined more uh, coherently its archipelagic principle. Concepts like the Indo-Pacific and Indonesia's engagement with like-minded middle powers, uh, specifically its uh, relationships with uh, Australia, South Korea, and uh, India. The role of ASEAN and key relationships uh, with its bilateral partners, and of course, uh, Indonesia's relationships, uh, sorry, Indonesia's relations with the great powers. The book to, to come will also feature research on Indonesia's foreign economic relations. This will, we hope, be a comprehensive volume on Indonesian foreign policy and Perhaps it'll be one of the first in-depth study of foreign policy approaches in Indonesia conducted since the post-Suharto era. I'm certain it will stimulate debate and further develop research agendas on the topic. But more importantly, research on, on this topic will be of value to the policy community. Thank you. I thought, given the location, uh, we couldn't uh, uh, have a, uh, a, a talk on, on Indonesia without at least uh, some emphasis on the Australia-Indonesia uh, relationship, which is, has been part of uh, the work that Derek and I uh, have uh, been doing. So I've just got a short, uh, I guess, uh, review of some of the key issues that were identified during our research uh, for the, uh, uh, the topic. And I'll just uh, sort of... Uh, start with why uh, perhaps uh, Indonesia should be deemed as uh, particularly important uh, for Australia. Obviously, there is the issue of proximity. Some talk about you know, a buffer uh, state to the north. But I see the, the fact that Indonesia is only separated by 240 uh, kilometres of ocean uh, from the, the top of Cape York uh, as being particularly relevant uh, in terms of the common sort of security challenges, the new sort of security agenda, non-traditional security issues, rather than, say, a traditional security threat, which has been, uh, you know, a, a, a concern in some quarters in, in past uh, uh, decades. That is not, of course, uh, uh, something that uh, uh, Indonesia has ever uh, entertained as an idea, nor has it got the capacity in terms of a blue water uh, navy. Uh, but on the non-traditional uh, security uh, side of the coin, uh, Indonesia's stability is, uh, continued stability into the future, is critical to uh, Australia's uh, uh, security. Uh, significant instability domestically uh, could lead to many issues, the current uh, situation or debate over irregular migration uh, would uh, pale under the uh, under a, a, a worst case uh, scenario. But also in terms of Indonesia's capacity to combat uh, crime, uh, to which the destination point, say with illicit narcotics, could be uh, Australia, and and perhaps already has been uh, pandemics and and many other uh, issues. But Indonesia's role as sort of the natural born leader, as the first among equals within ASEAN, also provides an important gateway for Australian diplomacy, uh, especially to the extent that we can work with Indonesia 
uh, for common goals and objectives. And of course, as ASEAN has engineered uh, uh, its exogenous institutions for broader engagement, be it the ASEAN Regional Forum, the ASEAN Plus Three, or the East Asia uh, Summit, uh, that, uh, that nexus, that, uh, that bridge via Indonesia will be increasingly important. Economically, uh, this can't be, I think, overstated. In terms of purchasing power parity, which is what you get for your dollar, um, perhaps the most important measure, Indonesia's economy is now 30% larger uh, than Australia's and continues to grow faster than Australia's at this uh, uncertain period in uh, the global uh, economy. Indonesia's middle class is now larger than, than the entire population of uh, Australia. Uh, the complementarities for future economic growth, however, are strong. Uh, from its own mix of natural resources, our natural resources, and, uh, and uh, advantages in terms of access to labour, uh, demographics in terms of, of uh, a, a, a youthful young uh, working force. Uh, the reality for Australia is that Indonesia will increasingly, from this point, some point in the last decade, we've, we've hit a juncture where Indonesia will be increasingly the larger, stronger power all things being equal, as, as long as there's, there's no retraction in its gain, than, uh, than Australia. And, and it's for this, these reasons and many others that uh, getting Australia's relationship with Indonesia right is absolutely uh, 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 critical. Now, within Indonesia itself, and, and this ties in with its, its broader foreign policy, etc., there have been some very significant uh, developments that tie in with the reformazi process and the consolidation of democracy. Certainly, there are still problems. I'm not suggesting everything is perfect, but nonetheless, just to take a few examples, if we look at uh, in, uh, in the aftermath of the devastation of the December 2004 tsunami, which wasn't, didn't just affect Indonesia, but uh, you know, was devastating in the HA uh, region, and we compare Indonesia's response to that of uh, the State Peace and Development Committee in Myanmar, uh, the, the, the Burmese uh, junta uh, following Cyclone Nargis. You couldn't see a stronger polar uh, opposites. Uh, Indonesia, under the leadership of Cecilio Bangbang Yudhoyono, not only welcomed foreign aid, unlike Myanmar, but even uh, permitted and, and allowed and enabled uh, foreign militaries to also assist in the recovery and reconstruction uh, efforts. If we also look um, at uh, Indonesia's shift in regional diplomacy, we see uh, an approach that is increasingly uh, complementary with uh, perhaps Australia's approach, only perhaps in some ways even more engaged. So uh, in the wake of uh, Cyclone Nargis and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Myanmar's refusal to allow aid in uh, to the country, Many of us are aware of Srin uh, Pitsuwan's uh, uh, diplomacy. Less are aware of the fact that in a foreign minister's meeting, the Indonesian foreign minister allegedly leaned across the table and actually slamming his fist on the table, uh, asked the foreign minister of Myanmar what he thought ASEAN membership meant to Myanmar and what at that time and in those circumstances, Myanmar's membership meant to ASEAN in terms of ASEAN's internal coherence and international profile and its 
membership shared vision for the future. The implications of this was clear that Myanmar's membership in ASEAN was at stake, uh, to quote a number of officials, including an ambassador in uh, Singapore. And it's in this, this regard that we see greater activism on issues like human rights. As the uh, Director General for ASEAN, uh, Deplu, or now Kemlu, uh, once stated, I believe, on this issue, non-interference, we are more open now. Indonesia is more open, more flexible, because of the democratization process. And perhaps one of the, the most uh, 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 exemplary examples concerns uh, Indonesia's proposal for a security community, particularly if we look at its draft plan uh, of action. Uh, now, in that plan of action, there were 75 concrete uh, uh, steps for the realization of a security community with fixed dates for implementation, uh, not your tra traditional sort of ASEAN way. This included a human rights commission with teeth, not what actually eventually evolved, but even a regional peacekeeping force standby uh, mechanism. And if you look at the Indonesian approach, and Marty Natalagawa was, uh, was very much involved, as was Rizal Sukma, in terms of the early advice on this, uh, on this approach, um, we can actually see a vision for the region that had complementarities with Kevin Rudd's Asia-Pacific uh, community. And as we know, that did not uh, get uh, much traction. But this is where I think that Australia needs to have a, a kind of reorientation uh, in, in perspective on how we look at Indonesia. Because had perhaps the then Prime Minister uh, uh, approached Indonesia first, uh, built a consensus, uh, got Indonesia on board, and, and uh, perhaps stated that we share your vision for Southeast Asia, cannot certain aspects that are complementary to the APC be enlarged for the broader region? I think that sort of approach, um, very much an ASEAN uh, approach, would have uh, gained uh, greater traction. Nonetheless, it did lead to a debate, and there was a positive outcome, perhaps more co uh, through coincidence than uh, planning, and that was the expansion or the, the, the beginning of the East Asia Summit and the uh, expansion of the East Asia Summit uh, to include the United States uh, and also uh, Russia uh, as the 17th and 18th uh, members of the uh, EAS. And uh, we also see Australia uh, playing in the, in the broader regional dynamics. Australia has played its own role in encouraging stronger Indonesia-US uh, 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 relations. Uh, this uh, is uh, something that I believe under a democratic identity and also given the, the kind of things Leonard had mentioned in terms of dynamics in the South China Sea, China's rise, etc., will mean that Indonesia itself will increasingly find it difficult to keep its kind of non-aligned uh, uh, position, particularly if the actions of other uh, greater powers uh, fundamentally contradict its emerging uh, uh, values uh, and uh, its approach uh, to uh, foreign uh, uh, policy. But certainly in terms of political values, again, emphasising the, the commonality or the, 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 the trends, the com growing complementarity between Indonesia's worldview and Australia's worldview, the emphasis on human rights, for example, 
uh, institutions such as the establishment with uh, President SBY and other uh, key leaders on the board of the Institute of Peace and Democracy in Bali. Uh, the language of that, uh, the Institute's name uh, says a lot. Uh, 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 the uh, focus on human rights in the region, uh, the emphasis on dealing with uh, aspects of transnational crime, the Bali process, uh, irregular migration, people smuggling, human trafficking, um, the willingness of Indonesia to work with Australia's federal police and other agencies in what has been an amazing success story, the Jakarta Centre for Law uh, Enforcement uh, Cooperation, JCLEC, which has led to several hundred uh, uh, arrests and uh, convictions on uh, terrorist-related matters, but also something like 52 countries have now participated in its training uh, courses. These are not insignificant uh, achievements. And these follow on the, on the, the back of other developments, uh, uh, such as the Lombok Treaty, the 2010 Strategic Partnership, the 2012 Defence Cooperation uh, Arrangement, which uh, uh, according to then uh, uh, Foreign Minister Stephen Smith, kind of put, or in paraphrasing here, put uh, meat to the bones in terms of guiding uh, cooperation under the Lombok uh, Treaty. Uh, in line with uh, efforts from both sides, we've seen coordinated maritime uh, patrols, a bilateral peacekeeping exercise, critically officer training, uh, through the bilateral defence cooperation program, such as what takes place at Western Creek at the Australian Defence Force uh, Academy, higher high-level regular dialogue, such as the Foreign Ministers and Defence Ministers, the two plus two uh, annual dialogue, and through to 2013, we, we saw statements uh, by uh, senior politicians that defence and security cooperation had reached the highest level in at least 15. Uh, uh, years. Unfortunately, as we all know, not everything has been a, 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 a positive uh, a picture, and I say through to 2013 deliberately. Uh, we had the Edward Snowden uh, uh, leaks um, and uh, the uh, uh, dampening of uh, the bilateral relationship as a consequence of that. Uh, the allegation or the, the leaks also concerned, for example, uh, intelligence intercepts of not just SBY and key ministers, uh, but also, uh, for example, uh, the president's uh, wife. Um, there was also uh, the uh, apology by Australia's uh, prime minister over uh, incursions, uh, stated uh, unintentional incursions into Indonesian uh, territory, uh, but uh, given the, uh, uh, the, the rise of uh, GPS or global positioning technology, etc., the unintentional statement has uh, uh, been perceived, uh, perhaps, uh, with uh, certain question marks by many uh, in uh, Jakarta. Uh, a, a key uh, 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 problem. I think that we also face is, and this is not just in Australia, but also in the broader region, a tendency to resort to populist uh, policies, to look uh, uh, politically at the next year, the next two or three years, um, but very few visions of 10 or 20 or 30 years. That's not always the case with some countries on, on that point in the, uh, in the uh, uh, region. And, uh, 
uh, when I say a decline of bipartisanship, which was something I can remember attending in the 1990s in Australian politics and, and the being taught about, you know, uh, because the stakes are so high, how traditionally there has been a degree of bipartisanship. But while we always expect debate and vigorous debate in a democracy, where are the policy blueprints for, you know, the 10-year the, the uh, sort of strategic plan with, uh, with uh, Indonesia, the white paper um, or uh, other uh, documents? And it's one thing to replace as they are updated, but uh, from many people's perspective in Asia, there is the archival of them uh, uh, may be misperceived as a rebuttal of the importance uh, of Australia's engagement in the region. I, I would like to think that that is a misperception. Uh, of course, uh, one of the problems with populist policies is that that uh, is also interdependent with the socio-cultural uh, level uh, of uh, engagement uh, to the extent that uh, some uh, statements are made that may offend on either side, whether it's Indonesia or Australia, a lack of mutual understanding amongst the mas masses at the grassroots uh, level is highly uh, 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 problematic. Um, fortunately for Australia, uh, one thing that uh, has been reaffirmed in my travels and also in, uh, through my uh, Indonesian colleagues and friends in uh, Canberra, including my uh, various uh, students, uh, that uh, amazingly, what we might be very self-conscious of in terms of various issues like the cattle uh, 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 problem uh, through to more recent developments, say, over intelligence, has not actually, uh, uh, intercepts, has not actually gained that much traction uh, beyond the English uh, 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 newspapers, such as the Jakarta Post. Uh, perhaps... Uh, uh, at a, uh, this may reflect a degree of pragmatism in the sense that the current leadership has uh, perhaps tried to avoid allowing this to be a nationalistic issue in the hope that things can be uh, resolved and that, the, uh, that uh, a full reproachment uh, can be made. But the other important pillar, which links to Derry's, uh, uh, some of Derry's uh, remarks, is the trade dimension. I remember meeting with uh, Ambassador Greg Moriarty on a couple of occasions, and every time he stressed that all good, solid, dependable, long-term relationships are under underpinned by significant trade. And through trade, you have interaction. And through interaction, you have mutual understanding uh, and, and strengthen relations between, between uh, societies. And this is perhaps the biggest uh, uh, challenge and gap in the Indonesia-Australia relationship. So just in terms of my final uh, uh, slide, uh, what uh, is, is needed, uh, uns uh, I think no surprises here in terms of resolving the outstanding diplomatic uh, issues coming up with some form of uh, MOU as has been discussed and finalising that in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, certain boundaries uh, regarding uh, intelligence. Uh, I do see a need, uh, maybe in certain sectors, maybe uh, for uh, certain politicians, maybe for all politicians, uh, to uh, have some form of mandatory uh, training on diplomacy and regional affairs. <laughs> I thought that would uh, uh, get a, uh, <laughs> a, uh, a reaction. Um, but uh, being Asia-wise, uh, having more knowledge about Asia uh, 
will be key to putting us ahead of our other competitors, many other countries in the West that will be seeking uh, to also uh, make uh, use of Asia's economic rise. And it's not so different to the ideas of universities such as the University of Southern Queensland in the 1990s where it didn't matter if you're going to be a scientist or an engineer, you would, as a compulsory uh, process, have to undertake one subject called Australia, Asia and the Pacific. So every student who graduated from that university left with at least a basic understanding of various political, cultural, historical elements in our immediate uh, neighbourhood. Um, the strengthening of the economic relationship, uh, moving ahead in terms of the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Partnership, uh, but also educating uh, such as what uh, Greg Moriarty has already been doing with exchanges uh, uh, for journalists, etc., and educating uh, journalists and, and key stakeholders on investment opportunities in the country. As of last year, he talked about something like only 130 or 140 companies, actually Australian companies, operating in the country. Um, a really positive side of what Australia has been doing has been our aid program. Indonesia has been the, the largest uh, source of, uh, uh, or the largest uh, uh, country for Australian uh, aid, and in turn, we are the biggest provider of aid for uh, Indonesia. The exchange programs that, we, that I mentioned before are critical and need uh, to continue, and I'm pleased to see that, uh, that there seems to be no change there. And we have the new Colombo plan, which is also important uh, in bringing Australians out into the region to also have a, a broader uh, and a deeper, not just understanding, but set of relationships that can hopefully build and grow uh, over, uh, over time. But perhaps, to some extent, the cart is before the horse because there also needs to be as much, if not more, emphasis on Asian language uh, training. And the fact that uh, New South Wales, as of a couple of years ago, was down to 86 people in Year 12 studying Bahasa Indonesia is highly disconcerting. 1,100 students nationally studying Bahasa Indonesia at the tertiary level uh, uh, in 2011. Uh, six universities have closed their Indonesia program since 2004. That is a dangerous trend. And once you lose the teaching capacity, it takes a long time to get it back. Um, and, uh, and, and that is my final point, the long-term investments, not just in Asian language, but also in Asian uh, studies. Approximately 2% of Year 12 Victorian high school students in 2009 uh, studied history, a history course with any content on Asia. Uh, I myself, as a graduate in the 1990s, learnt primarily about things such as the uh, Roman invasions of England, and I certainly uh, did not learn anything uh, about Asia until I was lucky enough to meet a Thai lecturer in my uh, undergraduate. Uh, studies. So I hope I've uh, provoked uh, some thoughts and uh, questions for the uh, discussions that follow. Thank you. Thanks very much, um, Chris and, and Derry and Leonard. And I think um, through those perspectives and insights, they've opened up a lot of issues that people may wish to pursue or any particular issues that they've not opened up, feel free to, to do so now. Before we start, I, I should just mention to Leonard that although these are sadder 
days than when you were here for the Canberra Raiders. We have managed to maintain their colours up here in the National <laughs> Security College, which is quite fortuitous, but I'm quite proud of that. And one day, uh, the sun will rise again, I'm sure. Okay, so let's have the first, um, the first comment, perspective, question for any or all of our panel. And there's a microphone here, so we can... He's going to break the ice for us. I guess this question is probably for Dr. Havir, but maybe something the rest of the panel would like to comment on. We're moving from a period in Indonesia where there's been a very internationalist president, you know, who has reached out into the world and had a, a very large figure in the world, and we're moving probably to a point where uh, Joko Widodo will become the president of Indonesia. I, I kind of see him as an Obama-like figure, you know, a man who has great charisma and has been elected for that, but I don't really get a sense of what his uh, foreign outlook would be. I wonder if you could give me some idea of what that might be. Not sure at all. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I think there was some, he's a very smart, shrewd person. Uh, the one indication I remember was he hosted the international mayors or, or Southeast Asian mayors of uh, uh, Southeast Asian cities in Jakarta. And uh, I think he was not uncomfortable in doing that. Uh, he speaks relatively, you know, uh, okay English um, and uh, um, I think more than anything else, it would be circumstances, external circumstances, national circumstances, that would uh, force any president to, to, to react to um, international events, for example. Um, if uh, you, I think uh, Leonard can talk uh, a bit more about uh, the other, you, you, you assumed uh, Jokowi as president. I think uh, there still is a very interesting election coming up. Uh, so uh, we don't necessarily have to uh, give him uh, the, the crown yet. Uh, and I think uh, um, uh, Leonard has an interesting perspective on uh, uh, Prabhu. Thank you for your question. Uh, the, uh, you know, jo while Jokowi is going to face challenges initially in his first two years, um, he is a very intelligent man, uh, as Derry has highlighted, very shrewd, uh, very decisive. I think the, the way to describe him is he, he is very much like Suharto in, in, in his operating style. But of course, you know, Indonesia is a democracy now, so he will be constrained by the environment. But the fact remains, he's someone who will gather together advisors, uh, listen to their advice, and it has to be really solid, practical advice. You know, typical shrewd businessman. And, and he will act on, on it decisively. Uh, but it has to make sense to him. But of course, you know, in matters of geoeconomics, geopolitics, uh, he still has a lot of uh, catching up to do. Uh, so it will be a, a challenge for him in the, in the first two years. Uh, but I suspect it will be similar to Suharto's situation uh, in the, the period, say, after 1967. Uh, where you know he was basically listening to to the technocrats who who gave him advice, uh, but by the the early nine, by 1970 or even the early 1970s, he was the one who started giving advice. So uh, what Jokowi will do is he will surround himself with able people. Um, you know, I, I think you will see different groups of, of people who will support him. Uh, one classic example would be say CSIS. Uh, who are positioning themselves to uh, 
become uh, Jokowi's advisors. But also, don't forget, the uh, vice president will play a more significant role. He will operate more like a chief of staff. Uh, this will allow uh, the vice president a certain amount of, uh, um, well, I, would, I, I suppose, certain amount of latitude uh, you know, to take part in, in WTO or uh, G20-type uh, events uh, to support the president. Uh, so there, there will be that uh, that element. Um, things uh, are now very much in flux. Uh, I think if we thought uh, six months ago that it would be a sure win for Jokowi, it's not going to, to be that straightforward. He has, he's got an almighty fight now on his hands. Um, he's still in the ascendancy. Uh, of course, if he, by that I mean he's still the odds-on favorite. Uh, but, you know, when you look at uh, his polling numbers, it's starting to drop. Um, the, the, real, the, the real issue is, you know, we, you have to look at the goal put. 34% of people didn't vote in the elections. So these people are, may turn out. And the likelihood also would be a lot of people would have preferred to vote for, for uh, someone that they feel represents political Islam uh, better. Uh, may actually vote for, for Prabowo. So there is actually the political Islam vote that could swing uh, in his direction. Also, the PKB will be split, no doubt about it. The, if it was united uh, uh, in, uh, if, it was, if it was more, sorry, the word I should use is coherent. If it was more coherent during the general elections, it will change now, uh, primarily because Roma Irama is not going to be uh, fronting their campaign any longer. Uh, Yeni Wahid is, is close to Prabowo and will draw some of the Nadatul Ulama vote uh, in that direction uh, as well. Also, everyone has forgotten about our dear friend Esbei, right? He hasn't uh, decided where he's going to hedge. So remember, that's 9% of the vote, right? Uh, Democrat Party. So if he decides to throw his weight behind Prabowo, that's the whole weight of government behind him. It's a very significant, uh, very significant uh, game changer that. Could I just add uh, a short something that uh, um, you mentioned internationalist uh, SPY. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Uh, that uh, you know, foreign policy they say starts at home, and I think uh, uh, Jokowi or even uh, who knows uh, a Prabowo would 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 focus uh, domestically, and if that turns out to work, uh, uh, you know, uh, become a bit more stable, then th th that provides the, the base for uh, uh, an active foreign policy. What are the implications for the Australia's, Australia's relationship with Indonesia if Prabowo does win? I think that's for the audience to answer. <laughs> um, no idea. Uh, the, the, there are I think if Prabowo does win, I don't think there is um, 
implications in what sense? Uh, in other words, um, um, is he going to attack Australia? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, uh, if actually, any any president that's coming in is, um, uh, in in a sense, hopefully, will take it as being a mandate from the the the, 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 the voters, and we have a. Now they're now a regular five-year cycle, and so mm, consequences will be thought about. Um, frankly, I don't think there would be um, um, any any clear or say. In other words, what I, I'm what I'm talking about is that the reaction would be more from the foreign community than it would be from a president, including Prabowo, uh, than. Um, um, than from uh, domestically, but I, maybe the others could share their, their point of view. Thank you. Um, yes, Prabowo has to, to take Australia seriously. It means Australia is an important partner um, and uh, simply cannot be ignored. I think the bigger issue is how Australia receives him. <laughs> more than anything else, you know, because of the uh, human rights issues uh, that surround him and uh, have crippled him uh, from time to time. So uh, I would say he, he does have strong nationalist tendencies, but the question is we don't really know whether this is rhetoric uh, that he, you know, plays to the gallery in order to drum up support uh, uh, in, in, in the course of electioneering, uh, remember that uh, nationalism always seeds under the surface in Indonesia. It doesn't take much, right, to, to trigger it. So I would wait and see, because um, he will also have to deal with the same problems that Jokowi would uh, when he becomes president. He's got to look very carefully at, at, the, at, at the government's revenue base. My sense is the, govern the government's revenue will be stretched quite significantly uh, over the course of the next uh, few years. So they have to think rationally about how to deal with fuel subsidies and provide uh, adequate funding to deal with some of the, the more pressing problems that they face, uh, you know, particularly in terms of food security, um, in terms of uh, proper health care for, for the population. Uh, these are all um, huge issues that need funding, uh, and uh, he has to be pragmatic. Uh, but of course, the, the bigger problem with him, as compared to Jokowi, is he's unpredictable, and that's the that's the problematic side of it. Thank you. Um, if we were to have an Asia-Pacific community, what vision do you have for its architecture? And I was wondering whether you envisage following the European community path. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, I, I think uh, the problem with the Asia-Pacific community, apart from getting the, or, or the, the concept of it, apart from uh, launching it in the right and, and, and uh, 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 way and, and getting people on board. Uh, 
that, that you know, this is something that, for example, was achieved with the ASEAN security community uh, idea. It was, it was one thing to get uh, a consensus even amongst the 10 ASEAN uh, countries, but the realisation, the implementation uh, is, is the uh, challenge. And, and, and that is, is very much interdependent with uh, the vast diversity uh, of not just Southeast Asia, but add in East Asia at so many levels, uh, uh, cultural, religious, all the great uh, religions intersect in Southeast Asia, um, but diverse strategic uh, alignments and, and associated with that animosities, tensions and competition, uh, Japan and China, South Korea and Japan and, uh, and, and, and many others. Uh, so, uh, and especially uh, in as far as uh, an EU-type model is, is concerned, then uh, that makes it even more, uh, you know, a, a more remote prospect. Uh, for an EU model to, to uh, even be applicable uh, to the region, uh, you really would need to finalise a process of internal consolidation. Uh, positive pluralistic nation building, um, uh, enough economic capacity, uh, less of a gap on that side. Um, and really, uh, I, I also believe uh, uh, common values, and that may debatably even include common democratic uh, values. And we see the fracture uh, taking place in the region, very much the new Cold War type divide is, you know, those countries that are, uh, with exceptions such as maybe uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, those countries uh, uh, that are more authoritarian find it easier to deal with China to get aid, uh, investment, uh, and benefits from China. Those countries that are either democratic or have at least convinced, say, various key Western players uh, that uh, that they are making bona fide changes, such as Myanmar. Etc. are getting a lot of support and shifting in alignment. And so we see actually quite a close line, with one or two exceptions always, as a generalisation uh, of political values lining up with strategic uh, alignment. And, and that's fracturing ASEAN and the region down the middle, uh, and, and hence why the APC, and especially not an EU model, uh, is uh, foreseeable or feasible uh, in the, the foreseeable future. Um, uh, uh, yes, uh, that, that's a, a very good point. I think uh, economic cooperation, collaboration, integration is a very different story. Um, uh, the problem with uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is the question of who's in and who's out. So it's, it's not uh, necessarily uh, a, 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 a unifying uh, a, a process within uh, the Asian uh, region. But the, the, the important dynamic in this explains why, for example, the ASEAN Economic Community Blueprint is literally three times the size in number of pages and detail uh, compared to, say, the ASEAN Security Community Blueprint. It's so much easier in relative uh, terms, at least in, in, in terms of your aspirations and, and rhetorical agreements, to uh, agree because if you're uh, democratic, uh, you're representing your people by uh, uh, progressing on the economic front. If you're authoritarian, you get regime legitimacy by bringing back the goods. Uh, so, so that becomes 
far less uh, sensitive, and hence the China-ASEAN Free Trade Agreement, the ASEAN-Australia-New Zealand Free Trade Agreement, uh, etc., and even things like enhanced dispute settlement mechanism, uh, so quite institutionalised developments, or relatively institutionalised developments in the economic sphere. There was one in the centre, just the back there, and we'll come down here. Up there, Martin, and then we'll come down to Martin. Thank you. Um, in addition to Chris' points in that slide, in order to improve uh, Australian relations with Indonesia and also uh, with Asia, I would like to suggest um, reorientation or redirection of Asian Century White Paper because that paper. I believe focus very much on you know economic relations, sociocultural relations, but less on diplomacy, foreign policy relations. For instance, Australia this year hosts the G20 summit, but there is not much engagement with Asian nations, including Indonesia, uh, to discuss uh, what Asian aspiration towards G20 and also other issues such as climate change. There is not much effort from Australian side to engage Asia in multilateral issues. Thanks. Thank you. Down the front here. I'd just like to hear your views looking ahead in the future. Pick five years or ten years. Is Indonesia still non-aligned? future is unpredictable. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that we're talking about Indonesia's ascent. A crisis could happen uh, somewhere down the line and uh, all bets are off. Um, and, and essentially, we need to prepare long term. Um, but then again, prepare for what? But I think the, 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 the foundational side of things uh, will need to be uh, uh, taken, taken care of. Um, If you're talking about, uh, say, if we're talking about long term, the the need the needs for Indonesia are education, uh, health, infrastructure, technology, technology including innovation. Um, if now to your question of whether they will be non-aligned, I think we'll. The, the, the dynamics of how they get to that point in terms of those areas might, uh, uh, might influence whatever shift they are. In other words, if China um, comes in with a lot of, uh, a lot of aid in certain areas, um, uh, I was mentioning not China, but I was mentioning uh, uh, Sweden coming in with uh, a life science uh, institute with high technology, um, a joint venture. Um, those types of um, advances might, uh, might, might shift. However, I think there are other Indonesians here. I would say that in principle, non-alignment has had a very strong hold on uh, uh, foreign uh, policy. It will take quite a lot to, to, to shift it. Uh, in particular, it would take a lot to shift it to 
treaty types of uh, arrangement. I think multilateral um, arrangements would be um, much more suitable. Uh, by the way, ASEAN Economic Community, it's coming up in 2015. I think uh, Indonesia is totally, well, I shouldn't say totally, but is quite unprepared for the consequences of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's not going to get them to shift to uh, one or the other. I think uh, 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 Leonard might have a, a different uh, viewpoint. Uh, on this in terms of the geopolitics of things, but uh, um, if five years would be potentially, say we have Jokowi as uh, president and he's going to have a second, uh, a second term as 10 years, um, honestly, I don't think there would be uh, any particular shift. It's the same thing with, uh, even more so, with somebody like Prabowo. Uh, sentimental links with the non-aligned movement, yes. Uh, but uh, I think in terms of its utility as an institution for Indonesia's foreign policy requirements, I think that will start to diminish uh, over time. Uh, the philosophies are still important, though, for for Indonesia. I mean, if you think about it, Bebas Active, uh, Mandayung Di Antara Dua Karang. I mean, these are all drawn from... Uh, or inspired uh, by the, the non-aligned movement principles. So I think, I think from, a, from an ideational perspective, yes. But um, Indonesia will still be part of the non-aligned movement, but whether it sees any utility in it, that'll be, I, I think it's quite unlikely. Uh, there are a lot of new institutions that have superseded it. I think more importantly for Indonesia, the G20 is going to be a very important forum. Uh, that is where it will engage uh, a host of uh, middle power states uh, and forge uh, more common linkages there. Yeah, I guess uh, just to, to add uh, uh, very quickly uh, to those uh, different points, um, yeah, I think, uh, for example, the, the behaviour of China will uh, have uh, some uh, role. Uh, and, and this links to uh, the early comment I made on, on the South China Sea. It's interesting to note, uh, in, in practical terms, I'm thinking here, and I agree that the, the sort of the, the values or the emotional uh, side will, will uh, continue, but in practical terms, uh, we've seen in the last few months the Indonesian military stand up and say for the first time publicly that uh, China's uh, uh, nine-dash line uh, conflicts with Indonesian interests and, uh, and territory. Um, that had been a very useful diplomatic device previously to, uh, to say that you are not, that they are not a claimant state and therefore could act as a, a neutral um, uh, party for negotiating. Um, and, and, and I'm sure it's, that doesn't necessarily represent the entire Indonesian security community, but we're seeing a fracture uh, uh, coming. And, and depending on, you know, given developments in Vietnam or to, between China and Vietnam and the Philippines' uh, statements about uh, uh, possible uh, uh, runway construction by uh, China, uh, depending how that uh, goes, and there's a lot of you know uh, other issues domestically that could could affect, but all things remain equal with Indonesia. Uh, depending how how things go with China will be uh, important, and also because now the U.S. can engage uh, in uh, the sale of weapons, uh, etc. 
that's also a you know important uh, supplier, and and uh, and the defence relationship is building. So it will be interesting, and I, I do think that the. Yes, and, uh, and I do think the sailing between two reefs and not getting too close to either will at least become more difficult from my own perspective anyhow. So, Hi, thanks very much. I have a question to just pick off on the very last comments um, Chris was making in his speech as um, an ANU undergraduate student of Asian Studies. I'm interested in the commentary about how even though there's been a push towards increased um, Asian Studies and Asian languages, there isn't a match-up with the graduate jobs for people who have studied Asian languages and Asian studies in Australian universities. So I guess my question is two-pronged. First, what kind of jobs do you see are available for young Australians who are graduating with Asian studies and Indonesian language majors? And secondly, um, how competitive are these kinds of people compared to young Indonesians who speak fluent English? No, some uh, very good uh, uh, questions uh, to put me on the spot there. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think, uh, uh, firstly, uh, the, the problem at the moment is that there is not the funding. Uh, for example, if, if you uh, learn an Asian uh, uh, language and become fluent in it, uh, there are not the job opportunities even, say, within teaching uh, uh, to, to move on. And, and so this is where there needs to be a, 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 a comprehensive, uh, well-thought-out policy in, in, uh, uh, in building up not just learning about languages but in turn also opportunities uh, beyond that. Certainly, I would imagine if, uh, if Australia uh, continues to reorientate uh, in terms of its investment and trade, and, and of course Asia is now collectively the bulk of, our, uh, of Australia's uh, trade, uh, then one would expect or should expect in the future, if, if companies are on the ball, that uh, people who are sort of Asia literate as such and have the language skills, etc., cetera, uh, serve, will serve and are serving a very valuable uh, purpose uh, in uh, private uh, industry. But there are still, sadly, uh, a, a lot of missed opportunities in, in the sense of, say, jobs in education, uh, uh, the, the, the number of uh, maybe ANU it has uh, been a, a bit of an oasis, uh, but most of the Asian studies uh, programs and, and the strong political departments that even extended out to regional universities, such as James Cook University in the 1990s, are all but gone. Um, and, uh, and so until those things and many other things are, are addressed, then uh, yes, there'll be a gap between supply and demand. That's a very good question. We could have got on for a long time there. We've only got time for one more question, um, which I'll have to ask to be brief and, and some brief responses before we can get you out the door, as we promised. So the last one will be just to you. Thanks. The, the panellists talked uh, about a range of issues of uh, Indian, Indonesia's outward orientation, G20, ASEAN, uh, bilateral relations with China and, US, uh, and US and so forth. Nobody yet has talked about the issue of orientation towards the Islamic world. Uh, I'd be interested just to get any thoughts that you may have. Uh, whether Prabowo uh, Jokowi presidency might be different in that regard, or whether you have any thoughts about the general uh, ideas that uh, have an Islamic uh, influence in foreign policy. Well, I think the days... Uh, thank you, Stephen, for, for that question. I think the days that, uh, in, uh, you know, the Islamic agenda could be divorced uh, in a straightforward way from foreign policy are over. 
I think uh, bottom-up pressures are very significant uh, and, and will shape uh, foreign policy making. Um, I think one has to look at the foreign policy making process uh, to get a better sense of how these things work now. Um, there are three dimensions to foreign policy making now in Indonesia. Uh, you have uh, non-state actors that are very, uh, uh, very uh, influential in uh, shaping the discourse. Um, uh, they may be uh, people representing uh, Islamic groups, or they could be special advisors uh, to uh, the president, who can have a word about uh, a, a, a word to. Uh, the president about uh, putting Islamic issues at the forefront. Um, there, uh, I mean, the institutional position of uh, Kemlu is more restrained, um, and that's what. But the, Kemlu is one uh, one element. The third element is really the office of the president, uh, and and you have foreign policy making uh, there as well. I mean, we we saw it quite clearly with uh, Dino Pati Jalal and uh, his initiatives within the president's office, uh, which uh, you know, took Indonesia in, in new and uh, uncharted uh, territory, uh, areas that uh, weren't traditional areas that uh, Kem Lu, uh, the foreign ministry, uh, uh, emphasized. Uh, but more importantly, I think we, we have to go back to the, my earlier point about the non-state actors. Uh, the, the people now outside the system who have the ability to influence the foreign policy process. Uh, there are times Indonesia can insulate itself. I think we saw that with the uh, voting patterns relating to uh, uh, sanctions uh, relating to uh, Iran. But I think now issues relating to Palestine or, or some of the more contentious issues uh, pertaining to uh, the Middle East it's very difficult for, for, for the government to, to no longer put an Islamic caste on foreign policy. Suharto was very successful in, in separating the two. But uh, Indonesia being a democracy now, um, there are those pressure points that the government has to be responsive to. So um, Islam will be on the agenda, uh, no doubt about it. I, I broadly I, I agree with what uh, uh, Leonard was talking about. But I, I think that also there's a gap in our knowledge of actually how the policy making uh, is being made. Uh, whether it's uh, it's just uh, a gap that we need to close to understand just broadly any of the policy making mechanism, um, if there are that, in a, both informal as well as uh, formal. And so, um, yeah, just to highlight that uh, that that gap. I'd like to thank Leonard and Chris and Derry very much for the insight and breadth they brought to their um, scene-setting remarks and also for their responses to some extremely probing questions, um, which I think drew a lot of these issues out in a very, very clear-sighted way. So I'd like to thank them for what they've done tonight. I'd also like to thank them very much for all of the work that's gone into this project over a long period of time and for the... National Security College, this is an important benchmark of international cooperation in terms of our research output. Um, I think it, it addresses 
a critically important area of public policy for Australia in a way that is informed by um, expertise and, um, and intellectual coherence. So um, thank you to Chris and, and for his leadership of it and to, and to Derry and Leonard for their vital support from the region. It's been great to have you with us. And I'd also like to say that it would be great to get them back later in the year once the presidential elections have, have yeah. been and gone and we can get some retrospectives and see how your projections really did measure up. But um, whichever way it happens, whatever, whatever may result, the implications for Australia are highly significant and your perspectives will be very greatly valued. So I hope this is a connection that we can continue to build on um, as far as the NSC goes. Um, and finally, can I just thank you all again very much for your attendance and support of these occasions. Um, they're tremendously reassuring for us that there is uh, uh, an important constituency out there with an interest in these things, and uh, we're very delighted to, to bring them to you. And I, I thank Martin and all his team, um, uh, and George and others at the college who work very hard in making these logistics work as smoothly as possible. So thank you for your support. Look forward to the, to the next occasion and a safe trip home. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.